Say what? I was ready to like not be startled when I was abruptly first. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> and then you weren't. And then I weren't. I wasn't. Then then I weren't. Then I weren't. Then you wasn't. <laughs> okay. Um, are people? How are you doing? Uh, keeping keeping up with the reading? Is it too little so that you're not keeping up with it by that standard paradox? You know that you've all had that experience, right? If there's if there's not that much reading, you just don't do it, <laughs> and then you're behind. Um, so has everyone kept up with the reading? Okay. So what have you been most surprised by? Let's say in the Holland's Head in the history. The history that I gave you, which is from, I should just tell you, it's from a really good, although slightly outdated book. We're going to be reading some stuff not from that book um, as far as sources go. But a really good multi-volume work, uh, I think it's six volumes, by Jeffrey Bullock from, the 19, from 1957 um, called Narrative and Dramatic Sources of Shakespeare. So they're basically, he collected in this multi-volume work all the sources that were then known for Shakespeare's plays. Um, the definite sources, stuff that Shakespeare definitely read, as well as the probable sources. And um, one of the <coughs> things you may have seen is that Hollinshead is himself using a different source, which um, Bullock just gives you a couple of pages um, from and gives you footnotes about. But basically, the Hollinshead is Shakespeare's go-to history for English history in general. Hollinshead talks about King Lear, not that much, but a little bit. Uh, he talks about the Henrys. He talks about uh, the Richards. And uh, that was a book where, and Shakespeare makes the same mistakes that Hollinshead made, one of them being the mistake on uh, the name of Macbeth's father, as uh, you saw. So what was most surprising about reading Hollinshead? Yeah, Harry. I was surprised at how, with the exception of a few things, how, like, blow for blow the same it was mm -hmm. for, like, the plot of Macbeth with the actual history. Like, there was very little, you know, artistic liberty taken in that way. Yeah. Um, so why do you think that is? That there, there are some liberties taken, and they're really interesting ones, but why do you think he's keeping... Yeah, Grace. Um, I mean, I don't know, like, how well-known, like, these histories were, but, like, if Macbeth was going to be, like, performed for James I, and, like, he is Scottish, so he's more likely to know, like, Oh, he totally history. knows. He totally so, like, knows. if you do it wrong, then it would, like, it might look bad. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, so for James I, again, we talked about this a little bit, but the, uh, the situation is that James is now king of England after Mary, Queen of Scots, has been executed by the previous um, uh, queen of England. So James is both full of a kind of resentment and also a kind of triumph. At least that's what Shakespeare would imagine in James. Um, do people know what uh, Guy Fawkes Day is about? What? Um, there was like a plot to blow up Parliament, mm -hmm. but then they like caught the people who were going to do it, and then one of them being like Guy Fawkes, who like has become kind of like the figurehead for it, and mm -hmm. then they like executed him, and now they do like fireworks and stuff like that, like penny for the guys. Nice. Okay. I used to live in the UK. In where? I used to live in the UK. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, so, so maybe I should say, oh, UK, instead of okay, or KK. <laughs> <laughs> well, correct. 
all correct. Good. You did learn something. Um, you did retain something. Um, th- so, so uh, when is Guy Fawkes Day? What are we supposed to remember? Remember. All right. Everyone remembers the fifth of November. So, the, so uh, what year? Okay, 1605. And um, what happened was that the King James was <coughs> supposed to address Parliament. And the Catholic conspirators, or the allegedly Catholic conspirators, it's not entirely um, clear what was going on, but probably the Catholic uh, conspirators who were against the, um, who were trying to bring Catholicism back to England, uh, were going to blow up Parliament with the entirety of Parliament in it, as well as the king who was supposed to be addressing Parliament. So it was, uh, it was a huge, a huge um, plot to uh, take down the entire British government and the entire British um, uh, leadership. And it was, whether it would have worked or not is, is unclear, but it was found almost by accident, the way the Watergate burglary was found almost by accident. And so it didn't happen, but there was massive paranoia and great fear. Um, Macbeth, Shakespeare then was, was performed. Shakespeare was probably writing it, but it was performed two months later. And so with the attempted decapitation of the English government, uh, the British government, the government of England and Scotland, that, that had occurred just before that, the question, it was, it was a hot and anxious political question. There were, there were terrorist threats, and you know from your own experience how much people respond to, how much terrorist threats are on people's minds, especially when there are near misses, as, as Guy Fawkes, as the um, plot to blow up parliament, was a near miss. And the, the, we already talked about how equivocation has to do with Catholic doctrine, and if you read the notes, um, you know that the equivocation of the conspirators who were being questioned, that they equivocated about what they did, and that they were doing it on the basis of the Catholic doctrine of equivocation. James was a person who took a very great interest in his lineage. Most kings and queens do, because they're interested in who their forebears are and how they got to be king or queen. But James in particular, he was very literate. Elizabeth was very literate as well. Uh, but James was very literate and read the history and, as you will see, and as we've already mentioned, was also really interested in witchcraft and demonology and wrote about it, wrote a book about it when he was in Scotland. So Shakespeare has to kind of get the history reasonably right because it's a play that's written for James who wants the history to be reasonably right as long as it's also a history which reflects well upon him, which the history does. So um, he does get it reasonably right, but what are the things that either (coughs) are surprising in the story um, in Holland's head as you're reading it, or what do you know if you know anything about what Holland's head gets wrong and that Shakespeare follows? So either way, just um, anything, in, the, the kind of thing you would have underlined 
Um, the, the scan that I sent you has underlinings of someone who underlined in the library book. Those are not mine, so you don't have to worry about that. But um, those underlinings are, you know, reasonably worth noticing. So what are the kinds of things you would have underlined, did underline? Yeah. Um, I, could be, I could be thinking of the wrong thing that she sent us, but when I was reading the uh, De Quincey, uh -huh. I happened to notice and I could be wrong about this, but it felt like De Quincey was sort of possibly, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, make, possibly making a hero out of Macbeth, like they would have with Guy Fawkes. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like the sort of situation where the same kind of act would have taken place, and with the severity of it, it almost feels like you would have sort of celebrated it in a sense. That De Quincey would have. Um, okay, so De Quincey is, um, he, he's giving an interpretation of Macbeth and what he's doing. I hope, I hope you saw that Coleridge was, who is a friend of De Quincey's, De Quincey's a little bit younger than Coleridge, but they shared um, a mutual admiration, or they, share, they had a shared admiration for opium. Um, the, um, that Coleridge says that uh, it's obvious that the knocking, uh, that, that the porter scene, that the beginning of the knocking at the gate scene, it can't be Shakespeare. It's too ridiculous. The actors must have insisted on clowning around and putting it in. And finally, Shakespeare uh, writes a line to end it. That's Coleridge's reading, um, where the porter um, says that uh, he'll devil porter it no longer which is a great verb. I'll devil porter it no longer. What does that mean? So it's worth thinking of the, let's, let's look at that. Um, then we'll get back to what, what Shakespeare um, gets and what he changes in Hollinshead. But um, if you go to um, Act 2, Scene 3, So does someone want to read um, the Porter speech? Now, cool, go for it. Here is a knocking, indeed. If a man were a okay, Porter, wait. Oh, okay. No, I'll do that. You can you can do that. Okay. Or someone else who wants to knock. Go, man. You oh, knock. Okay. Here is a knocking, indeed. If a man were a Porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key. Knock, knock, knock. Who's there? I, the name of... In the name. In the name of Beelzebub? Who's Beelzebub? Who is, Be who is Be um, Beelzebub? Oh, the sorry, devil. Beelzebub. Yeah, so uh, an, a devil. Um, in Paradise Lost, who is he? This is, the, Milton, uh, Milton is after Shakespeare, but in Paradise Lost, but um, a lot of Paradise Lost uh, has Macbeth in mind. Who's, who's uh, Beelzebub in Paradise Lost, anyone? He's the right-hand man of Satan. Yeah, he's Satan's right hand. He's a right hand fallen angel of Satan. Um, yeah, he's uh, Satan's nearest mate, the the person whom Satan uh, most trusts, the Banquo or Horatio to Satan. Okay, so who's there in the name of Beelzebub? Go on. Here's a farmer that hangs himself on the expectation of plenty. So what's that line coming from? Like context-wise, or like as a quote. 
Why is that the next thing he says? He says, who's there in the name of Beelzebub? If you're acting this, then how do you get to talking about a farmer? You had an answer. Whatever answer you have, give well, it. Well, I was thinking that, like, I mean, he's talking about, like, if people were, like, dead. So the idea that, like, somebody had, like, like staked everything on, like, the idea that, like, the harvest was going to come out, mm -hmm. like, well. Yeah. And then it didn't. Yeah. And so now they're dead. Yeah, or they, they've committed suicide because they hanged, he hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. But what is the porter doing to get from who's there in the name of Beelzebub to say, here's a farmer? What's he doing? Opening. Well, he's not actually opening the door because who, who's actually knocking? Macduff and Lennox. So if he were actually opening the door, then he would, he would say it's Macduff and Lennox. But what he's doing is he's stumbling around on stage and um, complaining, and then he pretends to open the door. And so, so you, would, you would have some sort of either, oh, it must be, he could point to the door, or he would just open a phantom door and say, oh, look, a farmer who hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Yeah. I've seen a production where he addresses audience members. With oh, and he's pointing to them? Um, so, they, so possible people who, who will um, knock on the door of Hell's Gate or who have. Yeah, pointing at the audience, interacting with the audience, is something that Shakespearean figures did a lot. Uh, so that's something that, that's not a, a modern breaking of the fourth wall, that's a kind of pre-fourth wall breaking of the fourth wall. Hamlet will say, uh, in soliloquies, he says, who calls me villain breaks my pate across. And uh, he's asking the audience, do any of you think I'm a villain? Iago will say, do people know how Iago echoes that in Othello? Yeah. He has a soliloquy where he says, like, oh, I'm not a villain, I'm just, or am I a villain? I'm just someone, I don't remember, who's like... Yeah, it, it's close. What he says is, um, what's he then who says I play the villain? So, again, Iago would talk to the entire audience and say, so, which of you is claiming I'm the villain? Because, really, I'm giving good advice. And um, Ed, um, Edmund addresses the audience when he asks, what's wrong with being a bastard, since my dimensions are as all compact as honest madam's issue? All of those, it's, it's frequently the case, especially with bad guys. Richard III, now is the winter of our discontent, made glorious summer by the son of York. One thing that gives bad guys their power is that they have an interesting kind of, they assume an interesting kind of um, complicity with the audience. They're the ones who know that there's an audience there. They know more than anyone else. They are able to address the audience. If you guys saw, um, um, oh, what was it, the Kevin Spacey uh, Washington show? Um, House of Cards. What is it? House of Cards. House of Cards, yeah. I kept wanting to say Jewel in the Crown. Uh, the moment when Kevin Spacey addresses the camera, that's a, that's a standard thing that happens in House of Cards. And it happened in the British version also, which was 20 years earlier, that the British Prime Minister addresses the camera. And they're the only one who knows the camera is there. It's, and that kind of complicity with us is part of their power. 
So he, so having um, doing it the way you saw it is a, is a, a reasonable way to do it. That the porter here, who is pretending to be um, uh, the porter of hell, letting people into hell, Elvie. You were saying that the bad guys have this connection with the audience. Could it be that like they're addressing to the darkness and the weakness in the audience too? Oh yeah. You guys would be the one to know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think especially with the porter pointing to sinners and saying here's a farmer and so on, then uh, it's not quite complicity as being put on the spot. And the person who puts you on the spot is the person who has this uh, power that you may not want them to have, but that they do have. So yeah, I think that's right. So at any rate, there's a knocking, and now he's saying, oh, a farmer, that's who must be knocking. It's some version of that. E. Um, but is it flipped because of the angel himself has the... Wait, so, I'm sorry, say it again. If he, is it, like, is he going to hell because he hanged himself and that's a sin? Yeah. Yeah, that is said to be the unpardonable, suicide is the unpardonable sin because it's the only sin that you can't repent for because you're dead. So the so hanging yourself, that that is the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost in Catholic doctrine. Uh, you all know the term unpardonable sin? There's, a, there's the um, Ethan um, Brand wants to figure out what the unpardonable sin is in Hawthorne. And um, the unpardonable sin is the one that can't be pardoned. There are different guesses as to what the unpardonable sin is, but people in Catholic doctrine, it's suicide. In Dante, the wood of the suicides. Anyone remember that from the Inferno? Um, anyone has anyone reread the Inferno recently? Um, the wood of the suicides. I read it last semester. <laughs> yeah. So, so the wood of the suicides are people hanging from trees. Yeah. And um, it's a very, very, I mean, all of the Inferno is grim, or most of it's grim, and that's a particularly grim moment. So, yeah, here's a farmer who hang, that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Uh, what play by Shakespeare might that remind you of, the expectation of plenty, and then the possibility of death because what you expected doesn't come? It's a little bit of a reach, but not that big a reach. Merchant of Venice. Antonio thinks that he's going to get all his uh, his merchandise back in plenty of time to play to pay Shylock, and then he doesn't. So Shylock is going to have him killed because he because that's the the contract that he signed. Okay, come in time, have napkins now about you. Here you'll sweat for it. So, okay, why do you need napkins in hell? What? It's hot, yeah. So napkin is another word for handkerchief. Uh, Othello uses the word about Desdemona's handkerchief. Your napkin is too small. So these are cloth napkins, uh, not paper napkins. And uh, so, yeah, you're going to be sweating. You better bring a handkerchief. Okay, knock, knock, knock. Oh, um, uh, you had No, who's there? Oh, who's there in the other devil's name? Faith, here's an equivocator. Equivocator. Yes, good, thank you. That, that could swear in both scales against either scale. Who committed treason enough for God's sake? 
Yet not equivocate to heaven. So what would it mean to equivocate to heaven? Yeah. Can I guess? Um, like, I guess, like, to make, like, a good enough case that, like, like, to talk your way out of hell, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, to basically say, no, I wasn't. If, if God says, you know, did you ever lie? And you take lie to mean something different from what God meant by it. Uh, then, you, you know, you could say, well, yeah, you know, I, I would lie in bed frequently until noon. And uh, that would be equivocating the wrong way because you'd say, yes, you lie. But uh, did you always tell the truth? And you could say, yes, I told the truth to go screw itself a whole lot of times. Um, and you would say, so, so that lying, you could claim that you were telling the truth to go screw itself, but you wouldn't have to add that every time you lied. That's a way of telling the truth to go screw itself. So you could say, yes, I always told the truth. And that would be a way of saying you always lied. That would be equivocation. And it doesn't work with heaven. Heaven wants you to speak directly and not ambiguously. The equivocation, of course, in Macbeth, just to remind you, is no man of woman born uh, laughed, uh, shall harm Macbeth. That is, that it looks like that means no one will harm him, but that's not what it means. So you can equivocate to other human beings who don't see all the possibilities of, of double meanings in what you're saying. Shakespeare loved those, as, um, we, as we've uh, mentioned before. If you think of Juliet, when she is defending Romeo to her mother but seems to be attacking him, um, if, if there were poison wood that none but I might give it to him, she says, which sounds like she wants to kill him, but actually means she wants to be sure that he's never poisoned. And um, she can't believe, she says, I wish Romeo were not far from the reach of these my hands, her mother thinks, so that she can strangle him. But what she, of course, means is so she can embrace him. So those are all equivocations. Do you know someone else, can you think of another character who has said that you can't fool heaven the way you can fool earthly judges? Another character who worries, complains about what will happen after you die. Yeah. So who in Hamlet? Claudius. Yeah. So Claudius in Hamlet is says that um, in after death, the action lies in its true nature or in his true nature. That is that on earth, you can a fence's gilded hand can um, uh, can get past justice can can. Uh, uh, do what it wants. On earth, you don't get justice, but um, in heaven, the action lies in his true nature, and there, there's no shuffling off. There, there's no pretending that things are different from from the way they really are. So, yeah, Nicole. So, I mean, to the question of the former, that anything can come from the equivocation is funny, but is that a reference to the fact that Macbeth kind of drives himself towards death? On the expectation of nice. Yeah, good. That Macbeth himself is expecting that things will be good, and the result is that he ends up being killed in battle with Macduff. 
Um, but it might also have a, have a kind of uh, opposite suggestion, which is what we looked at last time. If chance will have me king, then chance may crown me without my stir. That is, that's pure expectation. The problem, the mistake Beth, Macbeth makes is to go beyond expectation, which could be enough. If you think about it, let's say that there's a prophecy made to you uh, to take another one from Shakespeare, although it's, uh, it's also an equivocation. But if there's a prophecy, this is from Henry IV, Part Two, that you will die in Jerusalem. So there's a prophecy saying you'll die in Jerusalem. Henry IV takes that to mean that he will die in a crusade, which means that he will die in a state of grace after having uh, uh, engineered the killing of his predecessor, which kind of makes him a murderer, the, although he tries to claim he didn't really want Richard murdered. But he's sort of murdered Richard, so he's got to do something about it, which is to go on a crusade and redeem himself by fighting for Christianity. And that is the, his view. So, so, and there's a prophecy that he'll die in Jerusalem. So for him, that's a prophecy that he will die close to a prophecy that he will die redeemed. If you heard a prophecy that you would die in Jerusalem, and you weren't looking for redemption by engaging in a crusade, I hope. If you heard a prophecy that you would die in Jerusalem, what would you never do? Jerusalem. Yeah, Jerusalem would be a really good place to avoid. Um, and so if there's a prophecy, so just take this a step further. If you can rely on a prophecy or if you feel it's pretty reliable, that you'll become king, that the witches were right about Glamis, they were right about Cawder, and now they say you're going to become king. If, like, to quote a line from um, Antony and Cleopatra, if you like long life better than figs, which is a great line in Antony and Cleopatra, um, oh yes, I like long life better than figs, um, you might even like long life better than kingship. Some people, if offered um, kingship and a short life, you know, if you think of Achilles, who's offered a short and glorious life or a long but obscure life, and he picks the short and glorious life. Yeah? Well, kind of in that vein, does that mean then if, you know, the prophecy is reliable in that, like, he will become king eventually, couldn't he kind of just, like, sit back and watch everything unfold, and eventually he would become king? Yeah. And that, so that's what he means by if chance will have me king, then chance may crown me without my stir. That is, I don't have to do with if it's true. And notice he says chance rather than fate. But for him, that's again a question of to what extent do you have free will? To what extent do things happen um, the way they do without necessarily being fated to happen? Um, the use of chance, it's, it's, it's an odd word there, but let's, let's leave that aside for now. If chance will have me king, then chance may crown me without my stir, means I don't have to do anything. If it's true that I'm going to become king, all I have to do is wait, which is what you're saying. But then why even consider killing Duncan then? That's his question, and Lady Macbeth is the one who gives the answer. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and it, there is a, a debate 
that you can have and that I think Shakespeare wants you to be thinking about between letting fate take its course without your doing anything, which is essentially what happens to Macduff. Or, okay, this is, I really do want us to get back to, to where Shakespeare um, uh, monkeys with the history, but I think, I think we have a little bit of time. There is a thing that Shakespeare thinks a lot about, which is the extent, which is what we um, now would call the problem of solipsism. And the way, do people know what the word solipsism means? You know it's an insult, right? You're a solipsist. If you say that to someone, you're, you're saying something about what's wrong with them. Um, so anyone know what it means? Yeah, so, so solipsism in its strongest sense is the idea that you're the only being that exists in the world and that everything else is virtual reality and that everything, so it's from the word soul or only um, and you are the solo being in the world and other people are just figures within your world who are there for you in one way or another. So there's a sense in which, as a literary matter, it's something that occurs to everyone at some point in their lives. Um, at least it occurs to me, and that's, I'm the only person who exists. Um, <laughs> but the, the possibility of solipsism is something that occurs to people at some point in their lives. And some people are actually solipsists, which, means in, which as an insult means entirely self-absorbed. Uh, nothing matters to them but themselves. And the in literature, where something like solipsism is at least an issue is in a first-person fictional narrative. That is to say, if you have a first-person fictional narrative, a first-person novel, then everyone in the novel is made up, but the description of everyone else comes to you from the perspective of the narrator, the person who is narrating the novel. And that figure, because he or she is narrating the novel to you, that figure has a kind of reality, is the one who's describing the other fictional characters, but therefore has a kind of reality because all the other fictional characters are being projected onto the narrator's mind, whose mind we are reading when we read the first-person fiction. Does that make sense to people? So generally in literary works, there'll be what you can call the protagonist or the main character for whom and to whom the events that happen are arranged. So an interesting question, it's always an interesting question, who the protagonist or who the main character is. The main is probably, it's, it's, that's the screenwriting word, and it's probably a good word because protagonist um, narrows what that kind of character is a little bit too much. Protagonist literally means, as some of you know, what? Oh, I think you know. What? Like, first player? Yes! <laughs> all right! Or okay. Um, all correct. 
Yes, first player. So the protagonist is the person who makes the first move or who's the player that we care about. So we kind of say ready player one, and that's player one is the protagonist. Um, the antagonist is the person that the protagonist goes against. So the antagonist is someone whose point of view we rarely get. Just as a, in, 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 a, in, the, in the simplest manner, we rarely get the antagonist's point of view. We get Harry's point of view, but with some exceptions, um, and especially very few exceptions early on, we don't get Voldemort's point of view. So Harry is the protagonist, Voldemort is the antagonist. And um, it's the protagonist whose point of view that we get, and the protagonist for whom the fiction is designed. So the main, which is, um, as I say, a little bit less misleading or it covers a little bit more ground, the main is the character who the fiction is about. And everyone else, to quote Proust, is invented according to the needs of the story about the main character. So if you're writing a novel and you need the main character to be late for an appointment with, um, I don't know, the person she loves, then you have to have a cop who pulls her over and gives her a ticket causing her to be late. And so it's not that you're thinking deeply about this cop and how um, he got to be a cop and what he was doing as a child and did he play cops and robbers and did he decide that that's what he was going to do. It's just someone out there in the world whose function is a means rather than an end, who is not, this is a Kant, this is to quote Kant, not an end in him or herself, but a means to the end of the story. You need a cop. Cops are easy to find. You put the cop in your story. And there's, we take no interest in the cop at all. So in even a Shakespearean drama, there's a main character, often the title character. Not always, but often the title character. And everything else that happens in the drama is there for the main to be interacting with those others. So when you have a prophecy, and when you have a self-fulfilling prophecy, which is what you get in Macbeth, do people know the term self-fulfilling prophecy? Royce, what is it? Um, so it's when one hears about a prophecy and he actually ends up doing the thing the prophecy says. Yeah. Um, often in trying to avoid it. Yeah, so Macbeth isn't trying to avoid it, but, but the standard self-fulfilling prophecy is Oedipus. That is, that Oedipus, Laius, Oedipus's father, is told what? Yeah, so Laius is told that his newborn infant is going to kill him and marry his, his wife, that is, uh, the infant's mother. So what does Laius do? Gets rid of the infant. What does he do? He, gets rid of the infant. he tries to get rid of the infant by, by, putting him, uh, by, by having him taken uh, to be killed, but instead he is left uh, far, far away, um, but rescued. And then Oedipus grows up, in the house of an adopted mother and father, but he doesn't know that he's been adopted by them. 
And then what does he hear? Yeah. He hears that same prophecy, so he leaves his like adoptive parents because he thinks that that's what the prophecy is about. And so then he winds up going back to where he was born and then fulfilling the prophecy. Right. So had Laius not heard the prophecy that his son would kill him, he wouldn't have... Um, removed his son to a place where his son was raised by different parents. Had Oedipus not heard the prophecy that he would kill his father and marry his mother, he would have stayed with his adopted parents because he would have no anxiety about staying there, and he wouldn't have returned to Thebes not knowing that he was returning to see his real parents And so without the prophecy, there'd be no fulfillment of the prophecy. The prophecy isn't separate from its own fulfillment. The prophecy is part of the chain of causal events that that lead to its fulfillment. So in Macbeth, there's self-fulfilling prophecy as well. Macbeth is told that none of woman born will harm him, so he doesn't worry about fighting those who can harm him because he thinks nothing can harm him because of the prophecy. Had he not heard the prophecy, (coughs) he would have been much more careful about um, fighting who he fights against. He would have felt much um, less invulnerable. The first prophecy is that Macbeth will become a king. Now, that prophecy, the point is that those prophecies, or there are two people that prophecies are made about, two important people who are offered a glimpse by by looking into the seed of time, an amazing phrase that Banquo uses. If you can see into the seeds of time, tell me what will happen to me, says Banquo. So the two people who hear prophecies about their own future are Macbeth and Cassie and Banquo. Yeah, Lady Macbeth gets the prophecy from Macbeth, but the two people who actually hear the witches prophesy are Macbeth and Banquo. Yeah. So then in that case, I feel like you could sort of disprove that sense because I feel like it's more, it's not intentionally Macbeth's fault, I feel like it's more the fault the fault for the cause of Lady Macbeth, because in her mind, she takes that as, we need to ensure that this happens, mm-hmm. instead of, oh, we're just going to wait around and hope that it happens. Right. She's, in, she's essentially taking that prophecy into her own hands, so that she doesn't have to, in a sense, throw fate to the wind, so mm-hmm. that instead of waiting maybe like 20 or so years down the line, they ensure that it happens at that moment. Right. So what she's... And yeah, Cassie. I don't know if this is a related question or not, but um, with that, like with this, with Macbeth in mind, um, is there a distinction between self-fulfilling prophecies and like prophecies as a whole? Like is that a type of prophecy or is every prophecy a self-fulfilling prophecy at least to some extent? That's a good question. So what would a non-self-fulfilling prophecy look like? Anyone? Yeah. Um, I was thinking of like the one about the Trojan War that is similar to Oedipus, um, King Priam of Troy gets a prophecy that his son Paris is going to bring about the fall of Troy. Mm-hmm. And so like Oedipus, he has the baby exposed 
but again, like Oedipus, the baby isn't exposed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. so then he like grows up and then there's like the whole Trojan War and he brings about the fall of Troy, but like if he had grown up in Troy, he still it still could have happened exactly the same. Because he winds up returning to Troy and the knowledge of the prophecy doesn't really impact that much. Yeah. Or another example from the Trojan War is that Hecuba knows that Hector will be killed and that she'll be um, sold into slavery. And when Hector goes out to fight what will turn out to be his last battle, spoiler alert, um, she says, you know, what if this is the time that, um, what if it's now the time for you to die and me to be um, sold into slavery? And Hector basically says, um, well, let's hope not, but if it is, it is. So there the prophecy is, um, does no, it makes no difference except to the psychological experience of those, of the characters who are told what the future holds for them. And that's a thing that prophecy can do, is it can affect your psychological experience in a profound, well, in this case, in a tragic way. Uh, the prophecy that we all know, each of us um, uh, knows what's prophesied for us with absolute inevitability, which is what? Death. Our death. Yeah. So that is um, the prophecy that you hear sometime in childhood. Um, it's a surprise when you first hear it, but it's also unreal when you first hear it. And, um, but nevertheless, it's a prophecy that haunts you all your life. And it makes, what difference does it make? It makes a huge difference to you existentially and psychologically, um, but it probably doesn't um, make any obvious difference to how, well, it may make some difference to how you live your life, but not, in, not a causal difference to how you live your life. Um, unless you get yourself frozen through cryogenics or something, um, <laughs> then maybe there's a causal difference. Uh, someone's hand was up. Yeah, Royce. So because everyone will act differently on uh, prophecy, does that mean, in a sense, sort of all prophecies are self-fulfilling prophecies? Because, um, like, some some care about um, some care about that, like. Uh, try to avoid it, but some do not, and their actions are the reasons that cause the prophecies to happen, so in yeah. sense, uh, yeah. well, Sorry, so go on. No, uh, that's what So, but are you saying... So that would mean that for some people the prophecies are self-fulfilling. Um, do you guys know the... Um, uh, the, the there's a book called Appointment in Samara, which is based on... A, the title is based on, not based off, guys, based on a speech by, in a play by W. Somerset Maugham uh, where death speaks. Do people know this? I think I've heard of it. So, so death is speaking. Uh, death is a character in the play. And death is speaking. And says there was a um, merchant who sent uh, a servant to the marketplace in Baghdad to buy some fruits, and in Baghdad, um, he jostled me, or, and then he looked at me and recognized me. So he went running back to his master and said, Master, Master, I have seen death in the marketplace. Please now give me money 
and send me to Samara so that I will be able to avoid death, who is clearly um, uh, um, after me. That's not quite how it goes, but it was clearly after me. So the master gives him money and, and a horse and sends him to Samara. And then the master goes to the marketplace. The master came to the marketplace and found me. And he accosted me and he said, why, why did you intentionally frighten my servant with that menacing gesture that you gave him? And I had to reply, that wasn't a gesture of menace. It was a gesture of surprise. I was surprised to see him here in Baghdad since I knew that I had an appointment with him tonight in Samara. Um, so that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, yeah. Oh, I, I was going to say that, like, I think what Royce might have been trying to get at is that, like, even if you're not acting on the prophecy after you hear it, that non-action is still action. Okay, and nice. So therefore everything is to be self-fulfilling prophecy. And, I mean, every, every, every prophecy is both partially self-fulfilled as well as by some kind of natural cause. Like, if Macbeth were to not do anything and he became king, like, some, some part, some natural cause would have caused him to become king. It's not like magic would have happened and he would have been king. It kind of reminds me of, like, in, in Lewis's time travel when he talks about... Yes! <laughs> he just says going back in time and killing your grandpa and how it's not like magic is going to stop you from killing your grandpa. It's not like you're going to put a sword to him and then, like, it's going to rebound. It, a natural cause will stop you from killing your grandpa. So something natural and, and real will stop Macbeth, and, and that's partly self-fulfilled through his non-action. Yeah. And, and partly not. Yeah, so, so one way to put this, I mean, I think it's, I don't think Shakespeare thought it out this way as explicitly as we are, but the point is that if you ask about characters whose knowledge matters, then we're asking about main characters, characters who, whose thinking is part of what causes events to unfold as they do. So Shakespeare's characters are unprecedented in how much thinking they do and how much their thought governs what they will do next. But obviously, you know, the person who stops you for a speeding ticket, that person isn't thinking. If you are a murderer and you decide that you're going to kill Banquo because Macbeth has told you that uh, Banquo is responsible for your not thriving, then it's not the case that we're going to get a long speech where the murderer says, should I, shouldn't I, I don't know. Um, it's just that a, a figure like that is not one of the figures who whose thinking is mattering to the audience. So the characters who matter in Shakespeare are the ones whose thinking matters. And if they hear a prophecy, that's an event in their life that they have to think about. And it inevitably affects them. That everything, every thought that you have, affects what happens next. Affects your entire future. And it, the effect may be slight or subtle, but if you hear a prophecy, there has to be some way that it enters into the flood of causes and the flood of events that um, cause what happens next. Yeah, Emily. You could say that Lady Macbeth is of equal importance, if not more so, than Macbeth, because she is the one who pushes him forward, yeah. who unsexes herself, 
who takes on the characteristics of being a man and who makes fun of him any time that he is not macho enough. Yeah, yeah. And so that, that... He has misgivings. He has misgivings. She goes beyond them. She pushes him. Yeah, so she sees the prophecy as a guarantee. And that is uh, quite different from the way Macbeth wants to think of it as, at first, which is as a prediction that he doesn't have to do anything. She sees the prophecy as, now if you do it, you'll succeed. Um, he sees it as, um, I don't have to do anything. Chance may crown me without my stir. Cass without knowing enough about the actual history to like support this with historical evidence, is this a little bit a... like? predestination versus, like, free will conversation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and Macbeth wants it to be predestination. If he's predestined to be king, fine. Uh, let it happen. Uh, but Lady Macbeth says, no, it's free will. You have, to, you have to do what you want. And this is good because it means when you do what you want, you'll get it. Yeah. Uh, I, the only reason I think it has to be about what... Mr. Like Mr. Macbeth, or <laughs> not, not Lady Macbeth, yeah. Lord Macbeth, I don't know whatever you like. The reason I think it has to be about this soon to be King Macbeth, yeah. um, the Thane of Cawdor. Yeah, the Thane of Cawdor, um, is because Lady Macbeth dies first, and that death is an event in Macbeth's life. Like, yeah. I think we had spoken briefly last semester about how Romeo and Juliet is actually a tragedy of Juliet and not Romeo, mm -hmm. and the reason I thought that could be true is because. Romeo dies before Juliet. Right. So Romeo's death is an event in Juliet's yes. tragedy. Yeah. So I just feel like Lady Macbeth's death inside of Macbeth's life means that this is about Macbeth's life, not Lady Macbeth's life. Okay, good. Um, so it it is, it's probably, well, I think it's worth thinking about how much of Lady Macbeth's uh, subjectivity is mattering in to us in the play. And I would say it's a lot, but ultimately Macbeth's is is more, but that's that's an interesting question to keep in mind. The idea, though, is that there there are three ways. There are three characters who respond, or if you add Macduff, there are four characters who respond to prophecy. Macduff simply to say, "Oh, you misinterpreted the prophecy. Snag on you," as people used to say. You ever heard that phrase, "snag on you"? Um, You've heard it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it means uh, um, you're the one who's been wrong-footed, uh, so snag on you. You've, you've been snagged. Um, hoist by your own petard, if I can coin a phrase. Um, so that's, that's Macduff's response to the, pro to the prophecy. Uh, you blew it. Here's why. Um, Lady Macbeth's, Macbeth's response is, so I'll be king. Let's see it happen. Uh, Lady Macbeth's response is, um, the prophecy says you'll be king, so uh, you're guaranteed to be king, so do, do it. Um, just do it. Yeah, what were you going to say, Talia? Maybe I overlooked this in the play itself, but how does Macduff know the prophecy? Like, who tells him? Macbeth. Macbeth, when they're fighting, he says, um, this is in Act 5. There's too much of your family's blood on my hands already, um, and uh, I feel a little bit guilty about it. Um, but you should know that I lead a charmed life because none of woman born can harm me. And then Macduff says, "Psych," um, and uh, yep, yeah. um, I'm not a rapper, but 
uh, you're in trouble. So uh, that, that's how we know what the meaning of the prophecy actually is. Um, someone's hand up? No. Okay, so the other person who hears the prophecy is Banquo. And what effect does it have on him? Yeah, that's. Yeah, so let's look at the beginning of Act Two, but but Banquo's prophecy is that his children will become kings. So um, go to. Um, oh, sorry. Act two, scene one. And um, people are a little bit puzzled about where this scene takes place. If you read the notes, you can see that, uh, that Johnson was puzzled by uh, where this scene takes place. The puzzle is that Banquo seems to have diamonds and other things to give to Macbeth, but they're outside. So they're outside the castle. Banquo, how goes the night boy? Fleance, the moon is down. I have not heard the clock. So um, uh, the moon has set, but Fleance doesn't know what, um, what time it is. Um, but Banquo says, so that means it has to be after midnight. Um, she goes down at 12. That is, the uh, moon set that night was midnight. Um, so it must be later than midnight. And then Banquo, hold, take my sword. Um, so presumably, and the way it's usually played, is they've been riding, and now they are dismounting and um, getting ready to go to bed. It's very, very late at night. So where have they been? We don't know. But Banquo says, hold, take my sword. There's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. What does husbandry mean? Thrift. Say it. Sorry? Thrift. Thrift. Yeah. So... Um, to be so, so it's a word meaning thriftiness. Um, they um, in sh- uh, Sonnet of Shakespeare's, he says that they that have power to hurt and will do none. They are those who husband <coughs> nature's riches from expense. That is, that they make sure he's using the word husband as a verb there. They make sure that um, things are not expended more than they need to be. So, take my sword. There's husbandry in heaven. Their candles are all out. So, why is that husbandry in heaven? Yeah? They put out the candles so they won't burn all the way down. Yeah, so you can't see the stars. It's as though in the heavens they've snuffed the candles, which are what the stars are, um, in order to save the wax instead of letting them burn all out. Take thee that too. He gives um, Fleance something else that he's taking off. A heavy summons lies like led about, about me, so he wants to go to sleep. He's really, really exhausted. The heavy summons lies like lead about me, and yet I would not sleep. So he's afraid to sleep. He wants to sleep, but he's afraid to sleep. Um, who murder? Who's about to murder sleep? 
Macbeth. Macbeth. Yes, sleep no more. But he thought I heard a voice say, sleep no more. Macbeth hath murdered sleep. So here Banquo is exhausted, but he doesn't want to sleep. Merciful powers restrain in me the cursed thoughts, thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. So that is an interesting puzzle. Don't let me have the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. What thoughts does he not want to think? About the prophecy. Um, did you say murder, Royce? Um, so who would he murder? So, well, not yet. If he murders Macbeth, then the witch's prophecy don't, don't, won't come true. Um, so it can't be Mac if he wants the prophecy to become true. The son, Malcolm and Donaldbane. Yeah. Okay, possibly. Yeah. They they are for Macbeth. They're a stumbling block. Malcolm is a stumbling block when Duncan says that Malcolm is um, going to be uh, the inheritor of his throne, the Prince of Cumberland. Um, so possibly that. Um, but you all agreed that it has something to do with thoughts of how his descendants, his children, will become kings. And when, how does nature give way to those thoughts in repose? What does that mean? Say it again. He dreams about it, or he thinks about it, or he fantasizes about it, um, and he doesn't want to. So, in a way, he's the opposite of Lady Macbeth, who fantasizes about it because she does want to, because she loves the idea. Um, maybe also the opposite of Macbeth, who has negative fantasies about it at first. That is, um, I don't want to do it. I can't stop thinking about it, but I don't want to do it. But he doesn't even want to think about it. So he's afraid of going to sleep because that's when he thinks about it. But the question is, is he thinking about murdering Duncan or not? Yeah. So I, I think Banquo is the one who took the, op, uh, the, the other alternative that was available to Macbeth, which is to just let things be. And he knows that he suspects that Macbeth will do the thing. And he knows something will happen, but he just he's letting his conscience um, numb in order to kind of let that happen, and we can also see that in um, at the beginning of um, Act Three, where, where he kind of suspects it's implied, and and that in in for that reason we kind of can connect him to that farmer we talked about before, because he is also a reference to that stuff figure of a farmer who kind of benefits from the um, the who benefits from so he he's kind of the hoarding farmer who kind of um, saves um, this all the so that when there's there's not enough food, then he kind of he can sell those for profit. So he he can benefit from the um, tragic others, and so that's kind of what he is right now. Okay, good, good, yeah. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think to like take it just a step further, I think then you could argue that maybe what he doesn't want to fantasize about is this idea that he sort of instinctively feels that Macbeth probably will take care of. Duncan for nice. him, yes. and is 
like on at least some subliminal level taking pleasure in that like he knows that that's sort of what needs to happen in order for him to get what he wants and he also knows that he doesn't need to be the one to do it which means that he theoretically is sort of absolved of this sin um but there's a lot of talk um in one of the speeches that Macbeth gives but also just like generally speaking about the idea that like Macbeth says that he he sort of confesses to murdering Duncan without actually confessing it because he's saying like he was a guest in my house and like I sort of mur murdered him in thought by not protecting him appropriately and things like that and so I think that Banquo in that moment is sort of admitting to like a similar sense of like murdering Duncan in thought by taking pleasure in the thought that somebody else is going to murder him even if he has no intention of being directly involved in it. Okay, good. Yeah, Royce. Um, so may that be the reason why Banquo um, didn't tell anyone when Macbeth and Banquo first heard this prophecy and Macbeth, Macbeth's consciousness is flowing out and mm -hmm. he, like Banquo didn't tell Rose and what was the other thing? Um, Willoughby. Yeah. Yeah. May that be the reason? Okay, that's a, yeah. So, so that might be a thing that... Um, it hadn't occurred to me that it that uh, <laughs> it would be a good idea for Banquo to say, you know, there's a prophecy. Uh, you might want to think about this. Um, that uh, you know, I think it works that neither of them quite believes it when the witches say it, and it's really Lady Macbeth who makes it believable for Macbeth. I think that's part of what's um, the psychology of it is that there's this mysterious scene with these witches that appear and then disappear like bubbles of earth. The earth hath bubbles, and, um, the, uh, and, and that's what they are. They're bubbles that just disappear like bubbles. Um, on stage, it would um, in Shakespeare's stage, it would have been a neat effect. They would go down like the ghost in Hamlet um, through a trap door, but um, they just disappear. So there's something wondrous going on, something unreal. What's real has gone on off stage, which is Macbeth um, unseeming um, villains from the knave to the chops. But here there's this kind of unreal, to use De Quincey's word, syncope, that occurs um, between the actual real-life events that are occurring. Uh, Grace, what were you going to say? Um, I was just thinking that like, there might also some fear for Banquo because the idea that like his children will be kings but he won't means that like Macbeth is going to be king and then outlive him. So like right. if I were Banquo I'd be worried that if Macbeth is going to actually go through with it and like kill the king then like the idea that like Banquo must be next mm -hmm. because if like the line of succession is going to like divert to Banquo's family, the fact that he won't be king means that he's going to be dead. Mm -hmm. So like, I feel like there might be like, I mean, he might. The idea that Macbeth is going to pave the way for his for for Banquo's children is, I guess, good for Banquo. But the fact that he's got to be dead before that happens, like, and the fact that Macbeth is happen making it happen very fast, is like not great for Banquo. Yeah. Yeah. Although there's still the question. Uh, where, wh what about Malcolm? That yeah. is, um, it may just be that Malcolm would outlive Banquo. Uh, so, and he doesn't know that Fleance is going to be king. He just knows that his descendants are. Um, Emily, and then, um, Elvie, was your answer? Oh, yes. Okay, so Emily first. Just a, a quick comment back to the, the witches. We think the witches are so terrible, 
and they're so scary, and they're such monsters. But here, this is the, um, this is from Holland said, but this, this is the um, Volger of Shakespeare. There's a picture from Holland said, History of Scotland. I'm sure you can't see the picture. It it's in the. It, I think it was three in three witches who look like elegant ladies, and I was very taken aback. Every time I think about it, I'm very taken aback by it because they don't look horrible and, and scary. And but they do in Macbeth because they have beards. That's right. Uh, they do say that. But yeah. Here they look like yeah. just elegant noble ladies. Yeah. 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 So yeah. this is switching from history, in other words. This is well, it's not actual history, but yeah. Well, I mean, yes. Yeah. This is, this is yeah, yeah, um, to something which is more up James's alley, which is that witches are evil and scary, which is how, which is which is how James thought of them. Um, Elvie. Um, so I was actually thinking maybe there's another equivocation in the witches on prophecy um, with Bedwell. So basically, the second witch said, um, "You'll be not so happy, yet much happier." So just following the on. Yeah, just uh, mentioned that maybe Benpo was thinking that, uh, well, maybe Macbeth is going to take care of the fountain issue and, uh, oh, okay, maybe not that, but, um, well, <laughs> some thought, uh, just, uh, yeah, that place. Um, so, yeah, maybe Benpo was thinking that uh, there's a secret pressure that maybe Macbeth is going to take care of the king and I don't have to get my hands dirty. And maybe that's how he interprets that as get much happier. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to get involved in the work. Right, good. And then I think the equivocation here is maybe the witch was saying that we'll be much happier because we'll be bad. <laughs> <laughs> Without having to go through all the crap that Macbeth has to go through. Yeah, um, but there, yeah, I, th I <laughs> That that's a that's a nice idea, um, but um, it also is is the case that even for Macbeth, he's going to call it um, that he's clutching a, a fruitless scepter, um, and the idea that he's not going to have people continuing his lineage becomes for him something that is that is dreadful, and it's partly dreadful because of what it does to time. That is, that if you have, if you're in, well, we'll get back to this maybe, but a way to think about this is to ask what's the difference between Banquo's relationship to the continuity of time and Macbeth's relationship to the continuity of time? Yeah, Royce. Um, so I have a question. Um, since the three witches are really um, the, the, the manipulators of the whole tragedy, um, are the three witches merely functional characters, or there's some deeper interpretation uh, into their roles? You mean, do you want to think of them as subjective as well? Yeah. So I think you can make, it's possible to do a performance of Macbeth where their subjectivity matters, and, you know, they're helping each other at the beginning as well. That is, I'll give thee a wind, thou art kind and I another, I myself have all the other. That is, they're, they're complaining about how they're being treated by mortals, but they're um, probably going to just be more agents of the supernatural 
rather than figures. Or a, a way to put this is to say that the subjective, the, the witch who has extreme subjectivity is Lady Macbeth. So they're more like the, the cops you mentioned. Yeah, but if you double, if you're doing doubling in Macbeth, which you inevitably would in Shakespeare, um, you know that Shakespeare's female characters were played by boys, and the witches have to be gendered female, even though they have beards. It's uh, their um, they could be played by adult men who are who are um, um, voguing, but they're um, likely to be played by boys, and there are just not that many boys for female characters as part of the company. So it's almost certainly the case that um, maybe Hecate, rather than one of the witches, but Hecate is you know essentially another witch, and Lady Macbeth would be doubled. That is played by the same actor. Uh, they don't appear on stage at the same time, and the if you do double them, you get an interesting um, interaction between first Macbeth and um, Lady Macbeth, and then Macbeth with these other female figures of um, of gloomy prophecy or prophetic gloom, which are the witches plus plus Hecate. Ari, in a similar vein to that, a production I saw recently kind of gave the witches somewhat more involvement and agency in the story by having the actors playing the witches also playing like servants and minor characters yeah. as the witches yeah. um, and also just kind of being present on stage like watching things yeah. unfold um, yeah. and so rather than kind of having them set up the situation and then basically being gone except for like two other scenes right. rather they're a bit more um, involved in watching how things happen yeah, and you might even, um, you know, you have Lady Macduff as well, and um, that's another place where uh, there might be an interesting connection. In the Patrick Stewart version, um, the which I, I've ne- I haven't seen the video, I've just been told about it, but I saw it on stage twice. The um, Has anyone, by the way, watched the new Star Trek? Oh, well, Patrick Stewart. Um, make it so. Um, in the Patrick Stewart version... Um, the witches are nurses after the first scene. They're nurses to the, to the sergeant. Um, and when Duncan says, uh, you know, dress his wounds, the witches take him away, except really the stage goes dark except for them, and then they kill him. Um, so they are, um, you know, that scary figure, the nurse who is a murderer. Then in the um, banquet scene... Uh, where Banquo's ghost comes up, uh, Macbeth doesn't know where to sit, um, as you'll recall from your recent rereading of the play. Um, and the reason he doesn't know where to sit is that one of the seats that everyone else thinks is empty has Banquo sitting in it, um, to his eyes. And um, but the way the Patrick Stewart version did it um, was that the witches are um, standing in front of a chair so that Macbeth can't see it. And they, they are blocking his view. They're servants. Of, they're, they're the ones who are serving the supper. They're serving the banquet. Um, but Macbeth can't see the chair that they're blocking. And then, when Lady Macbeth says, no, sit over there, then they, um, then they move aside. And so Macbeth can see what's there. And um, so it's really neat to have them play that kind of um, um, haunt, little haunting um, or, or unca- their uncanny presence throughout the play um, is pretty neat. Um, so kind of going, tying in what you said, um, 
as I've been rereading this, I've noticed in a lot of scenes, characters are introduced in sets of three. Mm-hmm. And nice. In like that, murderers. Yeah. Yeah. So in that viewing, could we say that although they're not doubled, the witches are somewhat represented throughout the story? By, by triads. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think that's a great, that's, that's a, that's a great call. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing which made me feel like Lady of Us could be a fourth witch is that um, in Hamlet you have Hamlet and Horatio together with the ghost, and then later Hamlet alone with the ghost. Mm-hmm. And that's when all of the real evil plotting happens. Right. And here you've got Hamlet, you've got Macbeth and Banquo together with the witches, and then you've got Macbeth alone and the witches. That's great. Time with, um, with the witch Macbeth, you could say, with the Lady Macbeth in a way. Okay, yeah, neat. Yeah, and then also later on with the witches. But yeah, that's really neat. Um, okay, just to go back to um, the, the cursed thoughts that nature gives way to in repose. Um, so as soon as he asks for that, what happens? He's, he's, he is, you could say that he's um, superstitiously anxious or anxiously superstitious is um, one way of characterizing Banquo at the beginning of Act 2. And then what happens? What's the very next thing to happen? Do but look down at your page. Uh, Macbeth and... Andrew Macbeth. So he, there, he's, he's having anxious thoughts. He's worried about what he's going to, what's going to happen when he lies down. He has anxious thoughts. As soon as he says it, enter Macbeth. So that's a typical Shakespearean way of saying that Macbeth is the embodiment of his anxiety. And it's also a kind of foreshadowing or what's sometimes called a type, a um, prefiguration of Banquo doing the same thing to Macbeth after his murder. That is, enter Banquo, just as here we have um, Macbeth entering when Banquo is anxious. Later, the the um, um, the, the, the um, things will be switched up. Um, the shoe will be on the other foot. And, but that is, um, you could do that in a way that makes it really, really spooky. Okay, but then one last question from reading the history. How does Shakespeare change the role of Banquo from what Hollinshead says? So the crucial thing is that in Holland's head, Banquo is part of the conspiracy against Duncan. Um, that is, it is Banquo and Macbeth who kill Duncan, um, whose name is Donal, not Duncan, in the history. But Banquo and Macbeth are conspirers together. And Banquo is not someone who is made the innocent good guy as he is here. Banquo is part of the plot against Duncan. Duncan is not killed in Macbeth's castle. He's not killed with Lady Macbeth as part of the conspiracy, although Bullock does <coughs> um, show earlier moments in Holland's Head where other Scottish conspiracies and murders, um, where the wife of the 
the wife is part of the conspiracy. The wife of the person who becomes king is part of the conspiracy because she, she wants to be. But in the actual story, Banquo is part of the conspiracy against Duncan. Shakespeare changes that to make Banquo innocent. But his innocence isn't total because he is having whatever these scary thoughts are or these um, uncanny thoughts or these oppressive thoughts are. Um, they are nevertheless only thoughts and thoughts that he doesn't utter. And then the other part, you could say the self-fulfilling prophecy in Banquo's not acting upon it is when the murderers come, which is we haven't seen yet in our... in. Um, since we've only done the, officially done the first two acts, but when the murderers come, um, Fleans doesn't know that he is that he has to survive. Um, but Banquo does tell him to run away. He doesn't just he he also doesn't say, well, um, the witch is guaranteed that my descendants would be king, so Fleance is fine. He doesn't even have to run away. Um, of course, he has to run away, and that could be a very minor version of Lady Macbeth saying, of course you have to kill Duncan. Um, the fact that something is guaranteed doesn't mean that you can just sit back. Um, as you were saying, Nicole, it's not like Fleance is magically immune to being killed by the murderers. He's not magically immune. He's just naturalistically immune if he, gets, if he runs away on a dark night and the murderers don't get him. But there has to be an everyday reason that he survives. Just as there has to be an everyday reason that um, Macbeth becomes king, which is the clever one that he kills Duncan but lays the blame on Duncan's heirs, on Malcolm and Donalbane, who um, the very fact that they are afraid that they will be killed makes them look like they were the murderers. So um, that question, which is um, how much does prophecy affect what you're doing, it affects what you're doing a whole lot psychologically, but does it have to affect what you're doing physically or causally? Um, that's not clear. And the point is that there are two attitudes that you can take towards prophecy. And those two attitudes, we could say, are the Lady Macbeth attitude versus the Banquo attitude, with Macbeth caught right in the middle. OK, um, keep reading. I'll send you more links for next week. And have a good weekend.